Grab your popcorn and snacks. Find a comfy spot, take a seat or lie down, and let me transport you to a place of fantasy, ghost stories, ancient legends, odd creatures, alien encounters, and other magical topics. You may even decide to join the conversation. From faraway lands to your own backyard, with a small dash of pixie dust, turn out the lights and open your minds. The journey is about to begin. Hey, 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 welcome to California Haunts Radio. (laughs) I had to get a second here to do this. Let me get let me, let me push my buttons. Okay. Welcome tonight. We've got a great show. It's Monday, huh? I know I didn't get a chance to read yesterday, and I'm going to make it up to you guys on Saturday. So I'll read Saturday and Sunday this coming weekend. I have a new guest in my house, a gift um, from an Australian Kelpie breeder that I know who has given me two, three other dogs, and they've been wonderful dogs. And as a gift, she gave me, she, she, she brought it down to me. She brought me down a two-year-old Kelpie female. And uh, so I've got her here at the house. Real excited. She's well-trained. Real sweet. So uh, that's my excuse. If I have to jump up during the show and hear what's going on, if I hear my cat start screaming, that's why. Because I'll know she tried to eat my cats. But um, she's been here overnight. So far, she's been a really good dog. She's a... Uh, Whew, it's hot in here. She's still checking stuff out in the house, so uh, you know, just she's still at that ex- she's still at that exploration period. And if my eyes look funny tonight, I have a rip contact in my left eye, unfortunately. That's how it's gone today. But anyway, I want to welcome everybody here. I got an announcement to make. Um, my name is Charlotte. I am the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team, based out of Sacramento. You can find us at www.californiahaunts.org, or you can check us out at the radio website at CaliforniaHauntsRadio.com. Now, if you're watching from YouTube, there's a little guy down in the bottom right-hand corner who has a Sherlock Holmes hat on and has a magnifying glass. If you press on that guy, that will make you a subscriber to to the YouTube page. So that's what we're looking for is as many subscribers as possible with that YouTube page. So if you can find it in your heart to do that, that would be great. Also, if you see... Boy, this contact's going to be a bear. If you see this, t- the, if you see that ticker floating at the bottom of the page, that's down there because California Haunts is a nonprofit organization. So everything we do comes out of my pocket. So this, the mics you see, the cameras, the the lights, the everything, everything here, the computers comes out of my pocket. So if something breaks, I have to pay for it. Also, you know the cost for the internet, the cost for Streamyard, and the cost for the website. That's all out of my pocket as well. So if you guys could find it in your heart to help me out with a donation, that would be great because I want to keep these shows on the air as long as possible, as much as possible. And, uh, yeah, okay. And that is at paypal.me at California Haunts. And if, you, if you're uncomfortable with, with PayPal, we also have a Venmo. So go into Venmo and type in California Haunts, and you can do it directly from there, okay? One of the announcements I have for the people that, that my, my, for my regulars is that we're going to start doing what we call ghost tours. And what a ghost tour is, is that we will take five to ten people of the public with us on a ghost tour. Of course, there's a little fee for it because it's nonprofit, you know, it's a donation thing. And uh, you get to use our equipment, get to go around, we'll split you up. Uh, we'll split you up with our team members and go through a haunted building. So it's a pretty good deal. Excuse me, my, my allergies. Jeez, it's like everything goes at once, right? You know, you hit a certain age, your whole body just it's shot to hell. But anyway, um, yeah, so we're going to be starting up our ghost tours. Later on tonight, I should have details up on that, uh, up for that at the meetup. 
And I will also have details up for that at the web, at, at the California Haunts Radio website. So you can check it out and sign up because uh, we're only going to have 10 spots for this. And I still haven't chosen the hotel, but it will be a hotel uh, either in Sacramento or in the California Gold Country. Somewhere out there, but it will be drivable within distance of no, of no more than two hours. Okay? All right. Anyway, without further ado, tonight's show is going to be really cool because... Rebecca Pittman has been with us before. We talked about Lizzie Borden with her and uh, and another stuff. But tonight she's she's got a new book out about a murder. And what's cool about this book is that tomorrow night on NBC, there's going to be a miniseries on this thing with, with Renee, Zell, with Renee Zell, Zellweger starring. So I think I'm going to let Rebecca tell us about Rebecca and tell us about the book. And then you guys can kind of get into it. Okay. Here we go. Okay, so let's start this over. I'm here with Rebecca Pittman. She's been with us before. We talked the last time she was on, we talked about Lizzie Borden, which was really fun. But this time, she's going to be talking about a, a murder that is still, the, 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 I think they're in the penalty phase with. And the, the, the TV people caught on to it and they decided to make it into a, I guess, miniseries with, with Bernays Zellweger. And it's going to air tomorrow night. So the timing for this was impeccable. So I'm going to let her tell you about it. So have at it. Well, and I appreciate you. I appreciate you having me back on, Charlotte. Um, actually, they changed the air date to March 8th. Okay. So it'll be, um, what is that? Is that two, two weeks from tomorrow? Anyway, they changed it to March 8th. And Renee Zellweger will be playing the woman we'll be talking about this evening. Her name is Pam Hupp. Uh, Dateline NBC is um, co-producing the show with Renee Zellweger's production company as well as Bloomhouse. So a lot's gone into this. Um, Dateline's podcast has actually done more podcasts on Pam Hupp than any other subject, more than JonBenet Ramsey or O.J. Simpson because of the complete bizarre nature mm -hmm. of what's going on and i want to reiterate this is true crime this is not fiction uh -huh. and it is ongoing right now the investigation is still um going over everything before the preliminary hearing uh coming up in a month or two so if you'd like i can jump right in on who we're talking about here sure go ahead okay um Basically, the name of my book is Countdown to Murder, Pam Hupp, Death Insured. And the reason for the death insured, you'll find out in a moment. But um, the woman is, is, has been classified now as a serial killer. And we know that female serial killers are very rare. They only make up 5 to 7% of the serial killer population. And this is just one of the most bizarre stories I've ever heard. My friend Patty Bath in St. Louis got hold of me and said, have you heard about this crazy story going on out here? And I said, no. And as soon as I heard it, I knew it was something I was going to have to write about. I was very lucky to be able to interview the prosecuting attorneys because we're talking of three murders tonight, not just one. Right. Uh, the detectives, social media, the reporters, the family and friends of the victims. And everyone was so generous mm -hmm. with their time. When I was speaking with the prosecuting attorneys and the detectives, they would say, okay, you can print this right now, but not this right now. Okay. So 
I appreciated so much their trust in me that when they would share details, they knew I wasn't going to burn them or go ahead and put it in the book. And I didn't because a lot of this is still ongoing. There's new evidence turning up daily right now. Mm -hmm. And so with that being said, um, if you'd like, I'll jump in here and tell you who Cam Hub is and what this is about. Absolutely. Go for it. Okay. And just interrupt me anytime. Okay. Um, my, my sons say I wax verbose, <laughs> which is their way of saying I talk a lot. So feel <laughs> free to just jump in. Sure. Um, basically, what here's how, how this all went down. Um, Pam Hupp uh, has been married twice, uh, both with both husbands. She lived in Naples, Florida, mm -hmm. uh, had a daughter with the first husband, a son with the second. And eventually, with the second husband, they moved back to Missouri, where she had grown up and gone to school and high school, et cetera. So this is in 2002. And she starts work at a state farm insurance company. And there she meets a bubbly young woman named Betsy Faria, who is 10 years her junior. So at this time, Pam is 42, and Betsy's around 32, and just bubbly, sweet brilliant smile, dazzling blue eyes, just the sweetest young lady. And so they worked together, but not for very long. It was only a couple of years. In fact, Betsy left once and then came back again. And then when they both stopped working there, they drifted apart, as happens with coworkers. But in 2010, Betsy was diagnosed with breast cancer and had both breasts removed. Huh. and was undergoing some pretty stringent chemo treatments when all of a sudden Pam Hupp, and that's spelled H-U-P-P, -P, all of a sudden popped back into her life. And she was just everywhere. She took Betsy to chemo treatments. She walked with her for exercise. It was pretty much like wherever Betsy was, Pam was. Mm -hmm. And so... Um, in 2011, they she found out, Betsy did, that she was in remission. And so they she and her husband, Russ Faria, scheduled a Celebration for Life cruise. And uh, her adult family and friends were all going to go. She had two young daughters at the time, Mariah and Leah, who were 17 and 21, but they didn't go. It was just kind of for the adults. And it was scheduled for Thanksgiving of 2011. Well, one month before, they found out that not only was the cancer back, it had spread to her liver, mm. and they gave her three to five years to live. Wow. Um, they went ahead and did the cruise and came back, and now it's shortly before Christmas of 2011, and Pam is Pam Hupp is just continually going with her to chemo treatments and has actually ramped up the amount of time that she's spending with her. Well, Betsy, knowing that she's got kind of a death sentence at this point with the with the cancer, goes to her friend, Rita Wolf, who's her best friend, and says, I need to set up life insurance or something for my, for my family, for my daughters. Mm -hmm. I need to know they're going to be taken care of. And so Rita tells her, yo, there's lots of things you can do. You don't need a beneficiary. You can set up trusts. Um, so she worked with her on it. And when Betsy left that day, she felt better. She had two life insurance policies. One was for 150000 and one was for 100000 So she was going to leave the one for 100000 in one of her sister's names. She had three sisters. Mm -hmm. 
And so here's where the here's where the story really begins. December 23rd, right before Christmas, suddenly she and Pam Hupp end up at a library in Winghaven in O'Fallon, Missouri, and ask a librarian to witness a change of beneficiary form. And for some reason, Betsy has made Pam now the beneficiary of $150,000 life insurance, oh boy. replacing Betsy's husband, Russ, who'd been the beneficiary for 10 years. So the, no one knew about it. Uh -huh. Nobody in the family knew about it. So that happened on the 23rd, which was a Friday. Christmas was a Sunday. That whole Christmas weekend she spent with her family. They went to see all the other family members, et cetera. And then she had a chemo treatment on Tuesday. Hmm. So she spent the night, Monday night, with her mother, December the 26th, because her mother lived closer to where the chemo treatment was. Mm -hmm. And she often did this. Her husband, Russ, worked from home as an IT specialist. So she spent Monday night with her mother. And Pam told her that she was going to come take her to her chemo treatment the next day on Tuesday. Well, suddenly Betsy's telling her friend Rita that she doesn't really want to be around Pam. Things have started to change. She's feeling claustrophobic. It's like this woman is constantly here. I wondered if maybe she had started regretting putting Pam as the beneficiary and just didn't want to be around her right then. Maybe she was even going to change her mind about who she had as the beneficiary for the money. So anyway, um, she texts Pam Tuesday, the day of chemo, and said, listen, my mom's friend Bobby's in town. I haven't seen her in a long time. She's going to take me. We just want some one-on-one -on -one time. So thanks anyway, but don't come. And Pam texts her back and said, bummer. Well, the, the chemo was for 2 o'clock. Pam shows up at Betsy's mother's house at uh, 119 anyway and her mother said well they've already left what they what pam didn't know was they'd moved the chemo treatment up to 130 instead of two and the mom says sorry they're already gone so pam shows up at the chemo treatment anyway mm. even though betsy's told her not to come and betsy was really surprised when she walked in so she stays there with them throughout the treatment and she, I guess the three of them, Bobby and, and Pam and Betsy, come up with an idea. Betsy hates where they live. Russ had recently gotten a house. He'd only lived there two years, but it was way out in Troy, uh -huh. out in the middle of nowhere. And everything that Betsy did, tennis, her friends, her mom, her chemo, were all in Lake St. Louis, which is closer to St. Louis. And she was going to ask Russ that night when she got home, if they could rent her mother's old house, who was which was going through foreclosure, and move away from Troy. In fact, let's rent out the house in Troy. We'll make money off of it while we're living in my mother's old house. And she knew Russ wasn't going to be happy about it. He was tired of moving, and they this was their first real house, and they'd only been there two years. So chemo ends. Pam heads home to have dinner with her husband. Betsy takes her friend out for dinner mm -hmm. and then they head back to Betsy's mom's house and I, Pam talked her into letting her drive her home 
she was going to go back home that night. So Betsy gets home. She and Bobby and Janet are playing a board game. Her daughter, Mariah, who was 17, was sick on the couch with the flu. Pam shows up right around 530 to give her a ride home. And Betsy had already told Russ, her husband, who was going to come get her. He was right there. He was only five minutes away. He had game night every Tuesday with his friends. And he said, you don't want to ride home? And she goes, no, Pam Hupp's going to bring me home. And she goes, oh, shoot, I forgot my keys. And he goes, that's what she'd left her purse at home because they'd run around for Christmas. And then Russ had dropped her at her mom's to spend the night. So he said, well, I'll leave the door unlocked. I'll leave the foyer light on and the porch light. You're sure you don't need a ride? No, Pam's going to bring me home. So he takes off for his usual game night. He stops and gets gas. He stops and gets dog food. Betsy told him to pick some up. He gets cigarettes and iced tea. He goes to three different places, and he's on surveillance cameras at all of them. He's even got receipts. He gets to game night at 6 o'clock, which is 30 minutes away from his house. One of the guys didn't show up, so they ended up watching movies instead. Hmm. Meanwhile... Betsy and her mother and Bobby are playing this board game and Pam shows up and they make Pam wait till they get finished. So they don't actually leave until 6.30. So Pam's, and, and um, Betsy actually asked her daughter Mariah if she wanted to come and spend the night. And you, there just seemed to be something nervous about her. When I interviewed Mariah, she said she didn't get the feeling that her mother wanted to go mm -hmm. with Pam. And the thing that tore up my heart was Mariah said, I don't know if I had gone, if I could have saved her or if I'd be gone too, which is a really hard thing for a daughter to, right. to live with. So Pam drives her home. They pull up into the driveway uh, about seven o'clock. And oddly, Pam hurries up and puts her on the phone to Pam's husband. Supposedly, Pam was calling her husband to say, look, I just got here. I'll be heading home in a little bit. Oh, by the way, here's Betsy. Betsy, say hi to Mark. Yeah. So Betsy goes, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year. So now we've got a witness to the fact that Betsy's alive at 704. Mm -hmm. They go in the house. They, Betsy turns on some lights. She lets the dog out back and puts it on a chain to go to the bathroom. So here's where it gets interesting. Pam's original story when detectives came to see her the next morning was, did you go in the house? No, I didn't. This is what Pam told him. Two sentences later, well, okay, I did go in the house, but just to turn the foyer light on, and I did turn on the living room light. A few sentences later, well, okay, I did go into the master bedroom because she wanted to show me a Christmas present Russ got her. It was a jewelry stand. So basically she put herself in every room of the house where evidence showed up later. Mm -hmm. So anyway, um, according to her, she, you know, talked to Betsy for Betsy wanted her to, according. This is all according to Pam, the pets, Betsy asked her to stay and watch a movie until Russ got home. She said, no, I gotta go. So Betsy was expecting a phone call from her daughter, her other daughter, 
Leah, who had gone to a cellular phone company and needed Bessie's approval over the phone for adding her to a phone plan. Mm -hmm. So she called her mom and said, I'm going to be calling you in about 20 minutes and you need to answer the phone and say, yes, I give your my approval that she can be added to this. And she goes, okay. So she's expecting her call. Mm -hmm. So her daughter calls at 721. She'd only talked to her 20 minutes prior. Nobody answers. She tries again at 727. Nobody answers. 730. Nothing. Russ, um, Pam left. According to Pam, she called Betsy to tell her she was home. I'm home free. She can't, but they found out later from the cell phone data it was impossible from the time that she called there was no way she could have gotten home 30 minutes away already mm -hmm. so i'll leave that there for right now sure so russ in the meantime leaves game night he stops at arby's gets two burgers heads home he gets home at 9 37 walks in puts the dog food down takes off his coat and laying in the middle of the family room is his wife with a knife sticking out of her neck. Both of her wrists are cut. The one is cut so deeply it went clear to the bone and a huge puddle of blood under her head. And he fell down and looked at her and saw that her tongue was protruding from her mouth and she was very obviously dead. And he falls apart. He goes, stumbles into the kitchen, calls 911. And when you hear his 911 call, it's heartbreaking. The guy is literally sobbing and crying over and over. And, oh, God, why? And, and so anyway, it took the, the dispatcher a while to calm him down. The police, the first responder gets there, Chief Hollingsworth and um, Detective Hollingsworth, I'm sorry. And it's obvious to him. This isn't a this isn't a suicide. Russ told the the dispatcher, "My wife killed herself." Russ thought she'd gotten bad news at the chemo treatment that day and had killed herself, hmm. and that's what he told him. He thought she it was a suicide. So um, the detective puts him out in the car. It's 28 degrees outside. He puts him in the car, and the meanwhile, the others start showing up. The the paramedics, etc. They look at her, they feel her arm, she's cold and stiff. They knew that she'd been dead for some hours. This was not recent. Mm -hmm. And so immediately he's taken down to the police station, Russ is, and he they grill him for 36 hours. Whoa. They put him through a polygraph test. It started out where he wasn't suspicious of anything that they, you know, he thought, Okay, they're going to ask me questions, but he actually thought she had committed suicide. Right. And they said, why do you think that? He goes, because she tried to kill herself once before with a knife, and I had to take it from her. He said, because she got depressed over the cancer. And so finally, as the hours wear on and the, the, the news is being relayed in, the detective finally looks at him. He goes, Russ. She's been stabbed over 25 times. Wow. And Russ buries his face in his hands. He goes, oh, my God, no. And they said, a burglar doesn't do that, Russ. A stranger doesn't do that. Only someone who loves this woman and goes into a rage would do that. 
he's already taken a polygraph and they said you want to know how you did he goes well i had to have passed and they went no i've been doing this for a long time you stabbed her you killed betsy oh boy and now the whole the whole room is closing in on him for the first time he's realized he's in trouble right and he's going i did not do this and they're saying russ you stabbed her this this is a crime of passion and they said god is in this room and he said well then god knows i did not do this and as they're closing the net around him he finally says i want an attorney i want an attorney right now which ends it and you know that you've been a court right. reporter correct right. yes i have yes and a crime reporter yes. so you know once they say that they can't question you anymore right so they let him out on bail and um on a bond and so in the meantime the, the crime scenes they're going through all of this stuff and betsy's body's finally taken away and find they find out during the autopsy she was stabbed over 55 times wow that's a lot that's a lot and that's why they didn't believe him when he said it was a suicide but the thing was her clothing was really dark she had on a dark shirt, dark pants, and he was he went into shock when he saw her. And th what they found out during the autopsy was the majority of the wounds were post-mortem. In fact, the slash to the wrist that went to the bone would have bled profusely. There was no blood. Uh -huh. There were wounds in her back. There's no blood. So that means that it was staged to look like rage, but most of the stab wounds were done after her heart had stopped beating. So they believe the first wound was the knife wound. She was laying on the couch with a blanket, getting ready to watch TV when the murderer plunged a huge steak knife through her throat that came all the way out the other side. Um, and then the rest of the wounds were just heinous. I mean, one went clear through her ear into her to her skull, her eyelids, mm. it punctured her pancreas, her stomach, her liver. I mean, just about every vital organ. It was just horrible. And um, then what the crime scene people found was a swatch of blood on the light switch leading into the master bedroom. And in the master bedroom closet were Russell's slippers mm -hmm. with blood all over them. But the blood was mainly on the bottom and the sides. There was none on the top, like you would have thought would happen from cast off and dripping down on shoes. It wasn't. Right. There were no footprints leading from the scene, which would have happened if he'd stepped in it. There was no indication anyone had stepped in the blood. But there's these bloody slippers in the closet. On the knife handle is blood. But here's the interesting thing, Charlotte. The knife and the light switch didn't look like fingerprints. It looked like fabric. It looked like fabric in the blood, and which was really odd. Nobody could figure it out for a really long time. Right. So um, anyway, her um, her her socks were halfway off her feet. They had blood on them. It was just a really horrible, horrible scene. And so um, 
the funeral was a few days later, and the day after the funeral, they arrested Russ oh. for first-degree murder and criminal action, um, armed criminal action. So he's put in jail. He has to get a, a better attorney now, a criminal attorney, to defend him, Charles or Joel Schwartz and, the, and Nathan Swanson. And they start preparing a case. So um, they're looking at this thinking, this guy's got video proving where he was. You can see him putting gas in his car at, you know, 6.03. And all, you can see that he can see him in the store getting the dog food, getting that. And he's got all of this, these, you know, video surveillance with timestamps on them. He's got receipts. And he's got four friends who will swear he was sitting right there eight feet from him. Right. All through the evening. And we know Betsy was alive at 7.04 when she called Pam's husband and said Merry Christmas. Russ was already in the middle of Conan at that point watching a movie with his friends. And yet he's in jail. So the morning after the murder, they head to Pam Hupp's house, the detectives, because she's the last person to see Betsy alive. And she plays her role to the hilt. She's crying. She's obsessed. And then here it came. She starts throwing Russ under the bus. She said, well, a week, a few days, a week before the murder, he started putting a pillow over Betsy's face and saying, this is going to be what it feels like when you die. Nice. She claims that when they went, to, when Pam and Betsy went to the gym, that something was wrong with Betsy's Gatorade, that it tasted funny. Yeah. That it was cloudy, implying he poisoned it. And then she brought up three times. Betsy told me that she sent me an email telling me the things Russ was doing to her and wanting me to be the beneficiary of her life insurance policy to help her daughters out when they get older. Wow. <laughs> so she is just literally throwing this guy under the bus and they're believing everything she's saying. Right. So they ask her for the clothing she had on that night. They took a buckle swab inside of her mouth, but they never did anything with any of it. They never ran her DNA. They didn't do anything else with the clothes. They didn't look in her car. They just totally bought. They thought they had the guy they well, needed. Well, they, I mean, they just, didn't they even bother to look into the life insurance to see when it was uh, changed? They, they did. Um, this is what happened. Pam was actually already talking to detectives. They The life insurance they mailed it. She and Betsy mailed it Friday after they left the library. It actually hit the State Farm Insurance Company one day after the murder oh, okay. because of Christmas. And so the State Farm called the detective in charge of the case. And he said, uh, she says, well, you know, there's Pam Hupp's name on this. And he goes, no, we've got the guy we need. Russ Free has already been arrested. He's in jail. There, you know, Pam's not a suspect. Go ahead and pay her. So they paid her. Oh my gosh! What a what a, what a horrible thing of detective work. Oh, it gets a lot better. <laughs> um, so they, meanwhile, they just keep bringing Pam in, and they're buying everything she tells them, and she changes. She had they interviewed her thirteen different times. And every time her story changed, and they still didn't notice anything wrong. 
they just wanted her to be the star witness to, to nail this guy. So they went as far as to say they found a bloody trail into the kitchen that the luminol test showed and that it showed a cover-up, meaning he had cleaned up blood before he called 911. And um, they had the bloody slippers, they had the lights, which came back that Russ's DNA was nowhere. All the, the, the only DNA was Betsy's blood on the light switch. It, that's all there was. There wasn't one sign of a cleanup. Mm. They collected the drain spouts, no blood in the drains, no blood on towels. And they even the coroner during the trial said whoever did this would have been covered in blood. Yet there's and, and when they came and took Russ that night, he was wearing what you see him wearing in the videos of the stores and the gas station, and there's not one drop of blood on him. They took swabs of his hands, his feet, everything. There was nothing on this guy, and they still had him in jail. So they um, get ready for the first trial. He's arrested January 4th, one day after her funeral, and it was basically basically on Pam's words uh-huh. and the, the crime scene staging. So Pam gets the 150000 and um, Russ's first trial is November 18th of 2013. He's been in jail for two years. So 20 days before the trial, October 30th, something else happens. Basically, this is what's going on. The detectives are saying to Pam, look, this trial's coming up. You got the 150000 You were supposed to help the daughters, Betsy's daughters, with it. Have you given them any of the money? And she said no. And the detective said, hey, this is a huge problem. This could look bad. That mm-hmm. you came into this windfall four days after, before your um, friend dies. I would suggest you put that in a trust for the girls before this trial starts, just so it doesn't look bad for you. I mean, this is a detective. Right, right, right. Telling her how to avoid suspicion. She goes, oh, all right. He goes, will you do that? She goes, yeah, yeah, I'll do that. So she sets up a trust in June. His his trial's November. But she doesn't put any money in it. So as it's getting closer to the trial, they're saying, did you do it yet? Did you put, no, I haven't yet. So here's here comes part two. 20 days before the trial, because Pam had spent the money, basically. Right. Her mother mysteriously falls from a third story. Oh, my God. Yeah. At a senior citizen living facility, and Pam comes into $100,000. She put that 100000 into a revocable trust within four days of that trial. That's how close she came. Wow. She killed her mother. Oh, my. To get the money to put into the trust to deflect suspicion from her. Her mother was found with eight times the amount of Ambien in her body than any human would normally have. And the insidious part was Pam. And I, again, I'm saying this like with certainty, but there this is they're looking into this right now they're going back over it at first it was ruled an accidental death which blows my mind Mm -hmm. but with everything else happening um they're looking into it again but 
her balcony railing looked like it was broken out, like she'd fallen and gone through the railings. Wow. So they did all these tests with similar railings and even double, triple the force of this 210-pound woman. It didn't break them. But if you stood there and kicked at them, at the bottom where they're moored, they popped out. Wow. So six of them were messed up. Two had completely broken out, were laying down in the grass. The others were all bent at the exact same angle, like someone had stood there and kicked at them. Right. So this poor woman is laying three floors down. It's raining. It's Halloween. And judging by the coroner's report, she didn't die immediately. She laid there all night until the next day when she was found. And she laid there in the rain all night long until the following day. And they know that because she had a 91 degree um, temperature on her liver. Um, oh, my God. So here's someone. So this is what's going on. Her mom's name is Shirley. And Pam was already setting the scene for this. She told the, uh, the detectives months before that her mom had dementia, that she was starting to fall a lot. So she's already setting the scene for this right. months before her mother fell. So the day before, uh, the staff found her mom kind of unconscious, laying across the bed, called Pam. Pam came and got her, took her to the hospital. They didn't keep her. They let her go. So Pam took her home with her. The next day at 5 o'clock, she brings her back to the senior citizen place, and that is the exact time the residents go to dinner. Dinner is from 5 to 6.30. <laughs> it's also Halloween. They might have had a party planned. So this is October 30th. Pam goes upstairs with her mom, comes back down, and says, my mom won't be down for dinner. She may not be down for breakfast. If she's not down for lunch, could someone go uh, tomorrow? Could someone go check on her? So when she didn't show up for lunch, at 2.30, one of the staff went in, found the water running, and then looked and saw the door to the balcony standing open and noticed the broken railings and looked over and saw her. So she had been laying there all night before she died. I mean, that's yeah. just, what and suddenly Pam within, I mean, talk about. But what I don't get is that if she was in one of those hospital places, somebody had to have opened up the, 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 uh, the outlet to get to the balcony because the majority of the time, especially if someone has Alzheimer's, they're going to put locks on those doors. Well, that's what Pam was telling an attorney later. She said, they didn't think she had dementia. Did we in the family think she did? Oh, yeah, we were always joking. There goes Grandma again. She goes, but they wouldn't put her in a third-floor apartment if they thought she couldn't take care of herself. Right. Wow. So, but if you've got eight times the amount of Ambien in your system, all Pam would have had to do is basically drag her over, help her to the railing, and push her over. Right. And that's what we believe is there's the – it was supposed to look like she tripped and fell and went through the railings, but I think she pushed her over the top. Whoa. I just, that just blows my mind. I, I know this is her mother. And so, um, I mean, it came right down to the wire. The, the, the amount of courage that this took for this woman to keep the plates spinning. She basically got that into a revocable trust for the daughter so it wouldn't look funny four days before Russ's trial. 
So um, he's been in jail for two years. So is he did he was found guilty oh. of first degree murder. No matter they they would not allow his attorney to question Pam on the stand. Every time he tried to, he got shut down by the prosecuting attorney and the judge. They said, Your Honor, he's trying to impeach our witness. He tried to ask her about the insurance money. They wouldn't let him. He no matter what he did, they shut him down. And at one point he just screamed at the judge and said, I don't know whether to strip naked or bang my head on the bar to get your attention here. So they finally let him do what's called an offer of proof. And I'm sure you know what that is. Right. Um, basically, it means the jury's excused. So right. they can't hear any of it. And now he can question her. So he questioned her. And he was pretty rough on her. and it, But it didn't matter in the end because the jury didn't get to hear it. Right. And that would have given them, Charlotte, reasonable doubt that here's a woman that four days before this lady dies, not only comes into $150,000 of her life insurance money, but was the last person to see her alive. Right. And but Pam didn't have an alibi. Here's Russ with video surveillance and receipts and everything else. Pam, basically, it was just, you know, take her word for it. They didn't get hold of her cell phone oh, records until crazy. later to show where she was, etc. So anyway, he's found guilty. And as they're leading him out of there for life in prison plus 30 years, his attorney said, don't give up hope. I'm not going to quit yet. And, and his attorney was dead certain it was Pam. Oh. So, and so anyway, four days after they lead him away to prison, Pam pulled out of that hundred thousand dollars ninety seven thousand seven hundred and ninety bucks. She basically drains it, but right. for about two hundred and ten dollars. So she takes all the money out. So now we're in July twenty first, twenty fourteen. Russ is in prison, and the daughters are suing her now. So they want the money, and so there's a civil deposition. Which, you know, you know what that is. Right. They bring you in and you have a deposition before it goes to trial. And they're, the, the daughter's representatives, their attorneys, ask Pam, what do you plan to do with the money? She says, right now I don't plan to do anything with the money. She's very cocky. And finally, she finally just says, you know what? I revoked the trust. It was a revocable trust. I revoked it. They're not hmm. getting any money. I mean, just Ooh. so this is her best. Betsy was supposed to be her best friend. These are her daughters. And now she's claiming Betsy never asked her to do something for the daughters with the money that she just gave it to her. <laughs> this is crazy. So she's totally gone back on everything. So the minute that deposition was over, one of the girl's attorneys calls Joel Schwartz. Russ's attorney, and he goes, I don't know if this is going to make any difference to you, but Pam Hupp just revoked the trust. She's not giving the girls anything. And Joel lit up. He'd been looking for something, anything to ask for an appeal. Right. But you had, so he filed what's called a Mooney motion. And the only way you can do that is if there's new evidence. So he prayed there was a new judge now. This wasn't the other judge, that this guy would look at all of this stuff against Pam and that she just revoked the trust. She kept the money 
and the judge agreed with him and granted him another trial. And he's just elated. Russ was so excited, he literally picked him up off the floor. And so we go into everything leading up into trial number two. At this point, there is no disguising that Joel's going after Pam. Uh-huh. She's now panicking. And so the detectives, the det- in the meantime, in the, in the first trial, they're finding out that luminol test was a complete fake. There was no cover-up. In fact, during the first trial, when they brought up the evidence, they claimed, the detectives did, that when they took pictures of the luminol cover-up, that there was a camera malfunction, and those those six pictures came out black. You're just going to have to trust us. Wow. Meanwhile, George, Joel Schwartz is looking over all the evidence and realizes it's a complete lie. All the other pictures turned out. It's not that they're that, that malfat malfunction. There was no cleanup. They completely lied. And they were perjured. They were having detectives perjure themselves on the stand. So now with the second trial coming up, the prosecution and the detectives are desperate. They've got to make sure Russ stays in prison. They've got to make sure that what they did isn't found out. Uh-huh. So they're bringing Pam in like every other day. Help is here. So are you ready for this one, Charlotte? So the one detective, and this is audio tapes. You can listen to it. He says to Pam, this is leading up to the trial. It's, a, it's about June or July, and the trial is going to be November again, the second one. You know, so Pam, we've been talking about this, and... Here's what we think could have happened that night. Could it be possible that when you left, you might have seen Russ? Maybe he was out in the car. Maybe he followed you there. Maybe he knew you were coming. This is something we've kicked around, and I'm going to hand it over to you now. Is there any way you saw Russ that night? I mean, holy heck. What the heck? This is the detective feeding her this story, this lie. And she goes, no. And they're obviously disappointed. Oh, you didn't? No. Then she thinks about it. And a few months later in October, we're now one month before the trial, she comes back in. And again, you can listen to this. You can hear the excitement in their voices. She goes, you know what? I just remembered I did. I did see, I saw two men in the car and right on the side street when I came out and one of them ducked. And the, you can hear the excitement in the detective's voice. He goes, you did? Do, do you think you recognize? Yes, I do. I think it was Russ. I'm going, oh my God. I mean, just to listen to this stuff is like, are you kidding me? So here comes the best part. She then comes out. Now, this is the poor guy. This is three and a half years later. She says, you know, Betsy was having a hard time. I was her best friend. And one thing led to another. And I I became to her what a, I, what a husband should be. I replaced what a husband would be to her. And, and the, the Joel Schwartz and his co-counsel who are listening to this brand new tape recording, their jaws hit the floor. And they're going, she's not saying what we think she's saying. Oh, my God. And she came right out and said that they were having an affair, she and Betsy. 
and that Russ found him, pushed her up against the wall. She goes, you could feel the spit in your face. It was nasty. And he said, if I ever catch you two together again, I'm going to cut you up and bury you in the backyard. So basically this new lie now of being a lo- being lovers with Betsy sewed it up neatly. Not only is that why Betsy would have wanted her to have the money, she replaced what a husband would be, but that that's why Russ killed her. Was that <laughs> night he must have seen him, saw Pam leave the house, imagined maybe what he thought had been going on in there, and went in and killed her. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my gosh. This is crazy. And what gets so, me is her stories changed like three times. Oh, it, they changed every single time. In every one of the interviews, they changed. Wow. So it's now two weeks before the second trial. And Greg Chatton, who was the Russ's defense team's um, IT expert, finally found that email that Pam begged him three times to go look for. And this is what is so bizarre. What they found, Pam told them that a week before the murder, she had been with Betsy at the tennis club. Betsy loved tennis. And that Pam had been watching her play. And that she thought that's when Betsy might have tried to send that email. Uh-huh. So Greg Chatton, the IT guy that pulls this thing up, finds out the Wi-Fi used to create the letter was the club, which was the tennis club. But then it all falls apart. It was the only document on there that said author unknown. It was from Word 97, which wasn't installed on Betsy's laptop. It looked like someone tried to open her signature block to sign the letter, but couldn't get it to work. And then Betsy hadn't set up her Outlook account, which means you couldn't send the email. So Pam had to save it as a document instead. So what they surmised was that she showed up with a letter already written on a thumb drive. And Betsy typically took her laptop with her because she owned a DJ business at this point. And so while Betsy was playing tennis, Pam uploaded the letter that she had written herself into Betsy's laptop but couldn't get it to send. So she later corrected herself and told the, the detective she thought it might have been a document. Whoa, well, it was clear crazy. that that thing was not created on Betsy's laptop. And that whole letter was against Russ. It was against the pillow over the face. It was the Gatorade. It was, I need you to be the beneficiary and help my kids out when they're older. If you get this, please show it to the police if anything happens to me. I mean, so they found that a few days before Russ's second trial, and they were they were concerned until Greg Chatton popped up and showed them it could not Betsy couldn't have created it. Pam knew which laptop it was on, knew basically all the things that it said, and even the day it was written. So it basically blew up in her face. Um, so anyway. Um, Russ is acquitted and it's just I mean the judge looked at everything during the testimony it was obvious that two of the detectives lied on the stand 
after three and a half years, suddenly one of them who walked the crime scene that night said he remembered seeing droplets of water in the shower, meaning Russ cleaned up. And even the judge didn't buy it. Yeah. He said, where were the drops? In, in the middle of the tub. So no trail of water leading from them to the drain, no water anywhere else, just some drops in the middle of the tub. Yeah. How many? I don't know, about 11. I mean, it was so obvious. And there was no blood found in any of the drains. They took all of the drain traps. So anyway, Russ was acquitted. They found him not guilty. And this guy's been in prison for three and a half years. He walked out with tears rolling down his face. His mother grabbed him. Somebody plopped a, a cardinal's cap on his head because this is St. Louis. Right. And they let him go. And wow. his attorney's ecstatic, but he's also determined that he Pam Hupp's not getting away with this. He's going after her. And she knows this. And so here's where it gets even worse, and you're probably not going to believe this. Um, in the meantime, the civil trial that the daughters bring against her, they go to trial, and the judge ruled Pam can keep the money. He said, I don't, the paperwork's in order. Betsy knew life insurance. If she wanted it to say it goes to her daughter, she'd have put that on there. She didn't. It's in order. There's nothing I can do. Pam keeps the money. So she's, she and her husband are walking out of the courthouse. She's beaming. They walk by the Dateline cameras who were there filming. And she puts up a peace sign and says, tell Kathy hi for me. Kathy's the Dateline producer who'd been trying to get interviews with her, and Pam turned her down every time. So she's really being cocky. So now she knows that, that Joel Schwartz is coming for her. And this is, I don't, I don't know how much worse this story can get, but August 16th, well, let's start with August 10th, 2016. So this, Russ was acquitted November of 2015. So this is August the following year. Pam gets in her brand new Acadia and starts trolling through this trailer park that's not far from her home, sees a woman, young woman, standing out on the porch of her trailer watching her dog, went by one time and waved, and the lady's like, okay. She comes back around again, pulls at the end of the driveway, and says, hey, do you babysit? And this young woman, Carol Alford's like, who goes through a trailer park and asks a total stranger if they babysit? So she walks to the end of the driveway, and this woman's got her sunglasses on, and she's beaming at her. And she suddenly changes her story and says, I'm Kathy. I'm a producer with Dateline, and I'll give you $1,000 if you come with me to do a 911 reenactment call. And Carol's standing there barefoot thinking, what? And she's curious. She goes, well, I okay, I got to put the dog in the house. Well, when she went in, what Pam didn't know was this woman put two knives up the sleeves of her hoodie. She put one up one sleeve and put another one in the pouch of the hoodie. She said that she thought something was off with this woman, but she wanted to see where it was going. They pull away, and she asked Pam for some ID for Dateline. 
and Pam says, I don't, I don't have it with me right now. I'll show you when we get where we're going. We rented this little house up here to do the reenactment. And she gets nervous. And she goes, well, you need to take me back. I, I need my shoes. Reluctantly, Pam takes her back. And Carol asks her to just pull in the driveway because she's barefoot. Pam went to get out of the car, looks up, and sees a security camera attached to the front of this trailer. And she goes, you've got cameras. She goes, yes, I do. And Pam gets back in the car, and the lady says, you know what, I'm not interested. And she goes in the house. You can see all of this on the video. And she captured not only the license plate of Pam's car, but Pam. That's crazy. So she leaves, goes around the corner, sees this maintenance guy mowing, pulls up to him, intercepts, intercepts him on his way back with the lawnmower. He puts it in idle because she's beckoning over and tells him the same thing. And with Dateline, I'll give you $1,000 if you come with me. He didn't like her. She seemed really eager and pushy. And he said, no, I have to mow all these lots. I, I can't. So she goes home and the thing, and I, she waits six days. And I think she was waiting because Carol caught her on that surveillance camera. I think right. she was waiting to see if anybody was going to show up. Nobody did. So on August 16th, six days after she goes out trolling again, pulls up to an apartment complex. sees a young 33 year old man sitting out front, having a cigarette motions him over tells him the same thing and this time the guy gets in the car with her we know now that she drove him to her house which was about 15 minutes away and the story she told was that she'd been running errands that morning and was backing out of the driveway when a silver nissan pulled up which just happens to be one of the cars at the faria house Uh and saw a driver that looked like Russ. She described him as, a, you know, this guy, and she described what he looked like. She didn't call him Russ. And she said that this young guy jumped out of the car, ran up, opened her passenger's car door, jumped in, held a knife to her throat, and said, take me to the bank. We're going to go get Russ's money, meaning the 150000 she kept. And that she, with one swipe, knocks the knife out of his hand, runs into the house. He runs in after her, pounding on the walls. Then she runs into her bedroom where he pursues her. She turns around and shoots him five times. But what she did was she called 911 for real so that they'd hear the whole thing. And she's going, help, help, there's an intruder in my house. Help, help. And the dispatcher's trying to get her address, and she won't give it to him. She just keeps yelling, help, help. And you hear banging on the wall. You hear this guy's voice saying, do you want me to do to you what you did to your wife? And unfortunately, he got the sentence wrong. Uh-huh. Because here's the heartbreaking thing. The guy that, now the police don't know yet that she picked him up and brought him home. So this guy was mentally challenged. He'd been in a car wreck years before. He was he limped, and he had the, the mental capacity of a 12-year-old. She had to have known that when she got him in the car, and she took him anyway. 
So she did the 911 call. You can hear the five gunshots. The, the smoke alarm goes off. It's shrilling in the background. And the, the dispatcher, you can tell she's getting flustered because she won't give her the address. And suddenly there's all this silence for a minute. You can hear the fire alarm, but she's not talking anymore. Uh-huh. And then suddenly she comes back. She goes, hello, who is this? What, what do you mean? <laughs> I mean, so anyway, she goes, I'm going outside. I'm going outside. And they said, there's somebody pulling up right now. So the first person to get there is Chief Nesky, and he gave me the most wonderful interview for the book. And she's standing there in the driveway with her puppy on a leash, and she's going, I shot him, I shot him, I shot him. He goes, where is he? She was right there and through the door. The minute he looked in through the garage door into the house, he could see him laying there. He could tell he was dead. And he says, what What happened? She goes, he just jumped in the car and said, take me to the bank. We've got to get Russ's money. We've got to get Russ's money. And he said, who's Russ? She goes, I don't know. I don't know any Russ. Wow. And Chief Nesky kept going. He goes, Rebecca, it was like a mantra with her. It was, you know, take me to the bank. He goes, ma'am, you don't know a Russ. I don't know a Russ. So the medics show up, and they put her in the ambulance to check her. They don't take her anywhere. They they just take her in there to check her over to make sure she's okay. They mm-hmm. come out of the, uh, the ambulance and walk over to Chief Nesky, and they go, you know who that is, don't you? He goes, no, who? Pam Hupp. And he said, the name's ringing a bell, but I'm not. He goes, Pam Hupp, Russ Faria, the murder case several years ago in Lincoln County. And the light bulb came on. He went, oh, my gosh. Time out. Start over. Because she told him she didn't know any Russ. Right. So they take her to the police station, and for the first time, she's nervous because this is a different county now. This is St. Charles, not where Betsy was murdered. And these detectives are not her buddies. They come in and they take her shoes, they take her cell phone, and there's a whole different composure about her. But she tells them her lie, that this guy jumped in her car, all this other stuff, and she looks nervous and she looks over the detective. She goes, I just want to know why all these people are coming at me. You can tell she's nervous. Right. So meanwhile, they find out, they look in the car for the knife that she supposedly knocked out of this guy's hand. And it's neatly put between the seat and the console. Like somebody just kind of set it down there. Nice and neat. It's not laying on the floor or on the dashboard. They found out that's the same way she kept her kitchen knives in the kitchen was between the stove and the counter blade down with the handle sticking up. It's exactly the same way it was in the car. Mm -hmm. So they find out that she actually went to a dollar store, bought the knife. And in Lewis, Lewis, this young man's name is Lewis Gumpenberger that Mm -hmm. she shot in his pockets they find nine $100 bills and a note that supposedly Russ wrote that said um, to follow Pam Hupp home, kidnap her, get her in the car, get the money, then kill her with the knife, put it in her neck like she like she did or like I did to my wife. And that was the line Lewis got wrong during the 911 call. Mm-hmm. So it was supposed to look like Russ had hired this guy to go get her. Right. 
the whole idea was to put Russ back in prison and to deflect suspicion from her because Joel Schwartz was coming after her. Right. So that's what this whole thing was, that she sacrificed this poor guy was to make it look like Russ was trying to kill her and that he'd killed Betsy and that he was after the money. So the nine $100 bills, turns out they're all in perfect sequential order which means they're fresh out of the bank. They had not circulated yet. They were all in order. And she had promised these people a thousand if they came with her. And why, and I still don't know this, she kept back $100 and it was in her nightstand and it was in the same sequential order. Hmm. So they thought, what are the odds that this guy has this money in his pocket that supposedly Russ gave him but this woman's got a matching $100 bill in her nightstand in the same order. So between that, the dollar store with the knife, she bought the pad there that the note was written on, the pencil, and it, she, it, it, it was just a shut case. Wow. Um, so when she, they put her in jail and they're waiting, you know, in arraignment and her husband's talking to her on these recorded police phone calls, you know, from the police station. Right. And she goes, you won't believe all the lies. I mean, and you really do believe her husband didn't know all of this stuff that, that had happened. And she goes, they're telling me that they tracked my whereabouts. And they did. When they took that cell phone from her, when they were interviewing her, they found they could trace exactly where she went that she pulled up at that apartment complex, that she sat there for four minutes while she talked to this poor guy and then headed and took him right back home. And they, they looked for security cameras along the route that they took and found one outside a bakery, and there he is. He's in the car with her. And it's so sad. He's wearing his little Nike cap that has his name stitched on it. And yet she told these people that he jumped out of a speeding car and jumped in so anyway um so she's telling her husband on this recorded call she goes can you believe that they said that my onstar system in the car actually pinpointed everywhere i went that it was turned off and her husband goes well even if it's turned off it's never really off it's always running and you hear the shoes pause it's like the first time she thought, crap. She goes, it is? Oh, yeah. It's always running. Oh. Okay. Whatever. And he went, yeah. Okay. Whatever. Wow. And it's like, and so she went for an Alfred plea. And you know what an Alfred plea is with your background. Sure. But basically, she, it's saying... She knew the prosecution had enough to convict her. She's not saying she did it. She's right. not pleading guilty that she killed him. Right. She's just saying she's admitting they probably have enough. Right. So she took the plea rather than go to trial and got um, life in prison plus 30 years, the exact same thing Russ got. So while she's in prison, she decides with well, COVID has hit by now. And she had a deadline of February 2020 to 
appeal the Alford and she didn't. Her timeline was up. Finally, she decides, I'm going to reverse this. I'm going to just say my attorneys coerced me into an Alford plea. I don't want it anymore. And they said, you're too late. You know, the time passed that you could file that form. And she goes, well, no, COVID locked us down. No, COVID didn't lock you down until April. Hmm. So she, they didn't let her. They didn't let her um, get Good. out with that. So that brings us to today. Um, they are going for the death penalty now for Betsy. So they are um, taking her to trial. They've already, she's in prison for killing Louis Gumpenberger. Hmm. They're looking into her mother again as we as we speak. It's now been changed to undetermined instead of accidental, and they're back again talking to um, people trying to start looking into it again. Um, but they're going for the death penalty for Betsy. So that preliminary hearing is supposed to come up in the next month or two. They're redoing all of their investigation because it was tainted. The evidence in Betsy's murder, a lot of it was a lie, a lot of it was misdirection. So they're doing their own. And um, I've talked with two of the detectives. They have what they call their war room. And um, I'm just so proud of them. I'm so proud of the new prosecuting attorney, Mike Wood. These guys are honest. They have all this integrity and they aren't going to stop until they have an airtight case. And it's so amazing to to talk with them. And um, I, the hard part for me was not to put everything in the book because there were things that they told me, you can't put that in yet. Mm -hmm. So there'll be a sequel to the book um, after the hearing and the trial. The trial may not be till next year. When it's a death penalty case, they it, that carries a lot of marbles and they've got to make sure they have everything. Mike Wood also announced in July of 2021 that he's going after the prosecution team too that framed Russ. Hmm. So there's some heads that are going to roll, and I'm sure there's a lot of nervous people running around. But uh, he announced the death penalty, and uh, Pam was arraigned just last year, July 27th, uh, on first-degree murder charges for the death penalty. She did not want to be there in person because nobody's seen what she looked like for a while. She'd been in prison for a while. Right. And when she had to do that perp walk across the parking lot to go into the courthouse, she had changed so much. She'd lost all this weight, gaunt, silver hair down to her shoulders. And because of COVID, she got to wear a mask, which she was probably happy about because you right. couldn't see the lower part of her face. And as she walked by the cameras, Chris Hayes with Fox 2 News in St. Louis yelled out, hey, Pam, is there anything you want to say to Betsy's family? And she just looked straight ahead. So she's, she's, we know the, the two murders for sure. And there's no doubt in most people's minds that she killed her mom. Every time she killed somebody, it was because she needed money, except for Louis Gumpenberger, and that was to deflect suspicion away from her. Mm. But can you imagine driving through trailer parks and stuff, just picking a stranger that you're going to take him home and kill him? That's, I, you know, they got, they, they, they should throw over the key on her. 
That's well, horrible. Carol Alford, the one that said, never mind, let me out of the car. Yeah. When they interviewed her later, she's looking at the camera incredulous going, she was going to kill me. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. But what I don't understand is, I know, did the cops cover all the, I'm like way back here. Did the cops cover all that up because they had made mistakes or were, was it just one of those, well, the husband did it, we, you know, it's always the husband, let's just go after him. I think that's how they started out. But they, the, no, when they started um, down that road, it was to cover their butts by that time. Jeez. They needed Russ to stay in, in prison. They needed to make it look like their case was correct. And they were covering their butts by the by the end, by the second trial. I can hardly wait to see this miniseries now because, you know, wow. Wow, well, wow, Renee wow. Zellweger came under fire for wearing a fat suit in order to look more like Pam. Mm -hmm. They said, why didn't you just get a, an actress that had the same weight proportions? And I thought, this is just wore a prosthetic nose to look more like her. And I thought, what a ridiculous thing to be upset about. How many actors have had to put on you know, weight or put on right. suits or prosthetics to, to go to fade into the character. Right, right, right. I mean, I don't know if you saw Hitchcock with Anthony Hopkins, but the weight that, that he did in the, the fake nose, I mean, he, he completely disappeared and right. became Hitchcock. Right, right, right. Yeah. But Nicole Kidman wore prosthetic nose in the hours. Yes. I mean, to turn into Virginia Woolf. This is done all the time. So I don't know. But anyway, it is airing March 8th on NBC. And I think they're going there. This is called season one. So my guess is this is going to cover Betsy Faria's murder and the framing of her husband. And season two might go wow. into the mother's death and Louis Gumpenberger. Um, but there's also rumors there may be another victim in Florida. And um, I've I've been looking into that. I've been I've actually spent a lot of time on it. And um, so we're not done yet. I don't know if that's going to pan out. But uh, I apologize to the detectives in the PA because I was already looking into it when they started making calls, <laughs> and they were really nice. They said, knock yourself out. If you want to look, just, you know, if you find something, let us know. So they've been really nice, but they're, um, there could be somebody else, too. You know, sometimes the reporters or the book writers are the ones that will crack the case, too. I mean, the Charles Manson case, you know, the, uh, the story of when, of when the gun was thrown away and the cops didn't want to deal with it. You know, the, oh, I they didn't got, even think about yeah, that. Yeah, they got rid you know, the, the cops pushed this gun away. And the reporter remembered that you know this, and the guy, and the guy that had found the gun called the, called the news the news people to say, "Hey, uh, I found this gun, and I haven't heard anything about it. It was the actual gun they used." So it's people, you know, it's people like us that find this, that that, that are digging and find this stuff. Well, in all fairness, I mean, they we're looking at three murders here. Wow! And these detectives are going over all this DNA and all of this other stuff. So it's not, you know just this one victim in Florida no. and, but I have a lot more time than they do to look yes. into it right now because they're buried in all this other stuff. Yeah. And they've been so kind. I mean, they've been really, really nice. And, um, 
obviously there's a lot of things they don't tell me. They can't compromise the case. Right, right, right. And so I'm just very grateful. But um, they know I'm writing a sequel to this book, and, and they said, we'll give you the rest of it after we're done with it. I went, okay. <laughs> well, for what it's worth, guys, for people that don't know how the press how it works with the press, is that when there is an active case, a homicide, or even a, even a car accident, whatever, and there's pertinent stuff that happens in the case, they don't want the press finding out because, of course, it's going to get out in the public. And so a lot of that stuff's hidden because when they actually catch the gentleman or whoever did it, they they can do their little good cop, bad cop thing, you know, and 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 see if the guy, like, c- comes up with these facts because it hasn't been put in the paper yet. Because otherwise no, you, get, that's, that's true. you get copycat killers, you know, who read the stuff in the paper and they'll come in and they'll, you know, there's people that, that, that get off on saying, oh, yeah, I know about that. You know, and then they'll give all these facts, and they'll, but they'll only give the facts that, that, that have been in the public. Well, it's absolutely true. And they've also, um, the PA and the detectives said, if, if we go into something, we've got to have search warrants. We've got to do all the legal stuff. You don't. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So, anyway, I don't. <laughs> do you have time for me to tell you one other side story on this? Sure, go ahead. This is incredible. Um, when they arrested Pam, which was not long after they interviewed her that day, after she shot Lewis Gumpenberger, they put her in the police car. They're taking her in. They're reading her. You know, they're they're telling her, "We're arresting you for Lewis Gumpenberger. We've got all the goods on you." The only thing she said was, could you turn the AC down? I'm a little cold. Wow. So they get her to the interrogation room, and this is all filmed. And it is really weird to watch this. There's two detectives. They're reading her her rights. She signs the the Miranda rights thing, and then she says, I want an attorney. I want to talk to an attorney. So um, they step out of the room to go get the attorney. And they leave on the table, you can see a little pad of yellow post-it notes, a big pen, and both of their reading glasses, and her bottle of water. You can, you're watching this on the police camera. She stares at the water bottle, and in one swift motion, she pushes it forward a few inches, enough to grab the big pen and slide the bottle with the pen back toward her, uh-huh. like a magician slips the pen into the back waistband of her pants. When they come in, she goes, I need to use the bathroom. So one of the lady policemen takes her to the bathroom, waits outside the door, and all of a sudden, and this tape's still running, you hear men in the hallway yelling, Pam, Pam, Pam. What she did was she took that big pen out and was stabbing herself in the neck and in the wrists while she was in the bathroom. And the eerie thing is, is the female officers waiting for her. And when she was in there for a while, she said, Pam, are you okay? And very calmly, yeah, I'm fine. While she's stabbing herself Whoa. in the neck and in the wrists. Wow. So they were mainly superficial. A couple of them were kind of icky. But they, they take her into the hospital, patch her up, bring her back, and put her in jail. Wow. So... Here's the last part, because I'd rather end this with something that's not quite so awful. Sure. (laughs) Um, The day after she shot Lewis, 
and they had interviewed her and let her go, she knew something, you know, this is, this is not going well. So the, the, um, Robert Patrick with the St. Louis or, um, yeah, St. Louis Post-Dispatch newspaper was covering the case and he happened to drive by and with his photographer and here came Pam and Mark out of their home carrying a big white trash bag stuffed full of stuff, which they thought was odd. And his photographer caught a picture of them mm. before they got in the car. So they a search warrant was put together to search her house, which they did. In the meantime, they arrested her. And during the initial search, they saw a safe. But the safe wasn't on the search warrant. So they had to go get a separate search warrant. And they finally got the safe, brought it to the police headquarters. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, but Tim Lomar, the prosecuting attorney for the Lewis Gumpenberger case, shared this with me. Um, he said, I haven't told this to anybody. He said, when they opened the safe, there was one thing in it. He goes, want to guess what it was? I said, I don't know. He said it was a tube of KY jelly. Oh, my God. <laughs> she knew the detectives were going to open the safe, and it was her way of telling them what they could do to themselves. Oh, my God, that's funny. So they think the bag, the white trash bag, was everything that was in the safe. And that she and her husband were getting it out of there because they figured they were probably going to take the safe. Turned out some of the things in there were her mother's will, Betsy Faria's 2005 1033, whatever that form is. It shows how much money you have. A whole bunch of stuff on her own family. In fact, at one point, she sent an anonymous letter to Chris Hayes with Fox 2 throwing her sister under the bus for her mother falling over the balcony. I mean, this is, she sent hate mail to everybody. Um, Her neighbors were just, they didn't know what to do with her. They got hate mail. Their cars were keyed. Uh, It's just, it's one of the most insane stories I've ever heard in my life. That's crazy. But you've just shot a man, and seriously, you're going to put a tube of KY jelly in a safe for the police. That's crazy. I mean, oh my gosh. They can't, you know, they can't even get her on a psych on that because I mean that that that's not something a psychopath would do. This is something that a sane person would sit there and think about yeah. before doing good it. Point. Very good point. I mean. I just, it, narcissism, sociopath, wow. so far beyond that. And that's why I call it countdown to murder was the hours this woman had to have spent laying in the dark, counting down, making lists for all three murders. I mean, wow. it's just chilling. That's cr- That's insane. I mean, just, I mean, she, she had, I did the planning, the pre-planning to do, like you say, to do all this stuff. You know, she had it so well planned out. My God. Yeah, and I wonder how many other people there might have been. Right, over the years, too. It was all about her. She didn't care what happened to her best friend's daughters. She didn't care what happened to her own mother. It was all about her. Wow. So her husband did finally divorce her in 2020, just um, a couple of years ago, after she was um, put away for life. He did divorce her. And it, I mean, they were some of the people still can't believe he didn't know. How do you how do you have all these people dying around you, right? And not know. 
but um, I don't know. Wow, that is it's a... one of the strangest stories I've ever. And I thought Lizzie Borden was up there. Yeah. But, um, that is the most incredible thing I've heard in a long time. Isn't it? Oh my gosh. You feel like you're reading fiction, but it isn't. Wow. That is just, just. Oh my gosh, this woman. And I could see so why. Even when they're interviewing her, she has just shot this poor man five times. When they asked what her what she'd done during the day, she spent most of the time bragging about the loyalty card she got for free sodas at the gas station she goes to. She goes, I have to get my free soda every day. And she spends five minutes telling them about her rewards card. No remorse and at all. And she just shot this guy. No remorse so anyway, at all. Oh Louis Gumpenberger's mother filed for a $3 million lawsuit in a civil wrongful death and won, but Pam doesn't have any money. So her attorney, Louis's mother's attorney, is actually trying to see if they can even garnish Pam's $8 a month that the prison gives her uh, for the commissary. And um, Russ Faria filed a suit against Lincoln County for framing him basically and sending him away for three and a half years. He did win $2 million and he did get it. He deserved it. Yeah. Ruin his life for three so, years like that. Oh my I'll gosh. Leave you, I'll leave you with something that's heartwarming. Uh, I've become friends with Betsy's daughters. They're friends of mine on Facebook. Wonderful, wonderful young women. I don't know how they've lived through all of this. And so Mariah has a two-year-old boy, and she is due with a little girl. And the little girl, is her due date is Betsy's birthday. So it's Mariah's mother's birthday Aww. that this little baby is due. And, you know, Betsy's the one that was stabbed 55 times. And wow. when I was on the phone to Mariah... And she told me, and she she was choking up. It's very hard. It was hard for me to write the book, knowing mm -hmm. that this could bring them more pain. I had to present all the evidence. Right. I had to put the crime scene photos and all of that. It's packed with, with photos. And yet I wanted to be cognizant of these, these people's feelings that have been through so much. Anyway, so when Mariah said, so the baby's due on my mother's birthday and it's a girl, do you think that's a sign? I said, I, I'm sorry, I'm choking up. I oh said, my. I absolutely do. So that was one beautiful thing that came out of all of this. Right. I hope they throw away the key on her. And, you know, uh, I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to tell everybody here that I'm for the death penalty or anything like that. But when there is a heinous thing going on, like what she did. Just, 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 you know, the, the maximum punishment. That's all there is to it. Well, when they asked Tim Walmart, who was the prosecutor during Lewis Gumpenberger's trial, why, why he didn't go for the death penalty, he said two reasons. The main one was the family didn't want it. Because when there's a death penalty, it drags out. You can appeal and appeal and right. appeal. And the process goes on and on. And it, those poor families are just never free. And it costs the taxpayers $300,000 for a death penalty case um, to keep them in prison. So 
they said, never mind. We're happy that she's locked away and can never get out. Right. But uh, Mike Wood, the new prosecuting attorney for Lincoln County, is going for the death penalty, and there's not one person out there that's saying, don't do it. I mean, this woman, is she's, she's scary. And I don't think for one minute that that would have been her last victim if she was still out here. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Well, you know, as a reporter, you know, for me to say what I just said, you know, as, as a reporter uh, working on the news beat, you have to be fair and impartial with your stories no matter what. I mean, you know, you know the attitude is where you have to let the police do their jobs. Okay? Well, that's cool. You know, that, that, that's no problem. But now that I'm doing this, I can let my feelings out a little more. You know, and, ju and, and just say, yeah. look, you know, she, what she did was unbelievable. And she should have the maximum thing. Going, you know, she, she, she should be punished. And you know, I just, I, well, it's so unbelievable. I understand what you're saying, and it must does it feel good to finally just kind of say what you want? To? Yes, yes, it does. It does, because you see these cases all the time, you know, and you and you want to write this stuff down. I had a photo I took uh, during a trial. Uh, in this trial involved a little a teenage girl who had lost control of her vehicle and run over these other two teenage girls and killed one. And the mother of the one girl hid the car and took it to Southern California to have it rebuilt. Oh, my gosh. And the girl kept continuing to go to school. So, you know, she claimed that she saw a flash under the dashboard. It was leaning under the dashboard to see what it was when she lost control of the car. But oh the gosh. other girl that she hit flew right up on top of the windshield. So she knew she had hit something, but she took off. Oh, my gosh. But the point I'm making with this, I mean, she ended up in juvenile hall, obviously, in the end. But the point I'm making with this is I happened to be out after, during a court intermission one day. And her mother and her aunt and uncle were outside, and they were all crying. And I got them with my Zoom lens, and I took the photo back. I thought, man, here's a very, po you know, here's a very poignant photo that should right. run. Because this is them crying over this girl. And they wouldn't run it. The newspaper wouldn't run it. For whatever reason. Too controversial. And I didn't have permission oh. to take the photo. I don't know what the trip of it was. But but oh. this, this girl was about to be convicted. And they knew it. And they were all outside crying and holding each other. But that's what I'm talking about. You know, you, you come across this stuff all the time. As, as a member of the media. And, and it's nice sometimes. You know, and I, I'm still a member of the media. I still go out do stories. A lot of fluff stuff <laughs> you know i do a lot of freelancing but it's nice you know to have a, something like this show to say hey look you know we're when it comes to something like like with this like with pam huh you know pam, this pam no. no 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 the cops blew it they need to do something with her you know and and if it's the death if she gets the death penalty she gets the death penalty no one well, just gets, and then, and then you know, and no, there'll well, be another trial going after the prosecution team for Russ's. Well, yeah, you know, and we you don't guys, hear that very often. The thing to remember is no one just, no one just gets to death. I mean, I'm sure there's mistakes made with DNA, like, like early on over the years. You right. Know? But no one just, now, now, you know, with all the DNA stuff they can do now and all this stuff that goes on, no one just gets the death penalty because they're nice people or, you know, they're, they're going to get it for a reason. And this woman, you know, she did it over and over and over, and she was well aware of what she was doing. Yeah. 
oh my gosh, I left out. Your, your listeners are probably going, wait a minute, you mentioned that the blood on the light switch and on the knife oh, yeah, yeah, had yeah, a yeah. pattern, a fabric pattern. What they're thinking now in their probable cause statement for the death penalty for Pam is that that weave pattern in the blood on the knife handle that was, you know, that was used to kill Betsy and the fabric pattern on that light switch in blood. Yeah. They believe that the murderer took Betsy's socks off. That's why the socks were off. Tipped them in the blood and they said... You can tell it looks more like it's fingers in the socks than toes. And they used them as a glove and and dipped them in the blood, wrapped them around the knife handle and swiped the light plate and then threw the slippers. Um, In fact, even the, the witnesses in Russ's second trial said that you could tell someone had dipped his slippers in blood. So she completely staged the crime scene to set him up. But so that then she tried to put the socks back on her feet. And the reason they knew that, that there was blood on the socks on the bottoms where she dipped them, but there was no blood on her bare feet, which there would have been if she'd stepped in the blood. Right. But it looked like they, she gave up trying to get them back on her feet. There's even a blood transfer on Betsy's bare heel that looked like they were holding the foot trying to get it back on and gave up. And that's why both socks are halfway off. Wow. So she used them as gloves. Yeah, that took a lot, too. I mean, that... Yikes. Yikes, yikes, so yikes. So that left the fabric weave pattern. Well, that's the thing. I mean, this you know. is like something out of Perry Mason. It's just the weirdest thing I've ever seen. Well, yeah, it's like with the aunt, with the man when the Manson family went in and took parts of the the clothes, dipped them in the victim's blood, and, and, and wrote their messages on the wall. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah, yeah, a, a yuck. You know, premeditated. Well, I, I applaud your shows. You you work hard. <laughs> you you turn out a lot of shows. I try, you know, we're trying to get, get the word out on these shows, you know, and keep, and keep them going to all these different topics and stuff. And, and, uh, I, 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 I enjoy doing them, you know, and this, and shows like yours gives me a chance to be, uh, you know, a, a, a real reporter again. Well, I appreciate you always having me on Charlotte and sharing that with me. Uh, it's a joy talking to you and tell your dog you did really good yeah she did actually in fact <laughs> if, if you notice while you were talking a couple of times i went out to check on her and see what she was doing and uh, she, she's only two years old she's an australian kelpie so they have a lot of high energy and when i would go out there she was just laying out by her by her crate that's all she, she never got up wow. so she was really good the whole time so i'm real proud of her you know for doing it you know because i didn't know if i could trust her but uh, well, yeah, tell her Aunt Rebecca is real proud of. Oh, her. I will. She's 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 real <laughs> sweet. Um, she's real timid. She's she's afraid of her own shadow. But uh, I, I think I got a winner. <laughs> you know? Yeah, you do. And uh, well, I, I, again, thank you. Um, the book is Countdown to Murder. Sure. And it's on Amazon, and um, it's been doing really well. Obviously, having the commercials for this NBC thing show up during the Super Bowl didn't hurt me any. Right. Um, but yeah, I'm looking forward to the miniseries. I, I hope they stay true to it because this is a story you can't make up. You oh, don't no. need to sensationalize it. It's got enough as it is. Well, John from the chat room says, and let me get back over here. He says, I'm stunned. I don't know what to say. 
It is stunning. The whole thing is stunning. Unbelievable. I mean, she, oh my God. I mean, the cops blew it. She got away with it for so long. That's just insane. Yeah. I I just can't because I'm friends with with her friends and her family now, it is hard for me. I, I feel a sense of guilt that I'm that I wrote a book, and yet the family's been really. I mean, her daughters have been really kind, right? Um, and I tried. I, I there's a really great chapter in there about Betsy. I wanted people to see her as so much more than a victim, because she was amazing. And I just hope that I didn't do anything to cause the family more pain. Um, but I've tried to keep in touch with them. I sent everybody autographed copies of the book to thank them for their time and, and trusting me with their story. And um, so anyway, that's just the whole thing. We'll, we'll see what it's happens insane. next. I think I have a shocked audience today. The, re- <laughs> the reactions I'm seeing, people are shocked. I mean, they just can't believe that that this woman got away with this stuff, you know, and then it went on for so long. It's just craziness. And let me tell you, I'm glad they're doing, I'm glad NBC is doing this either in a miniseries or a series because they they can't do this in like four hours. <laughs> there's just no way. Oh, there's no way. Yeah. Well, and Dateline was back out there again. So I think they're doing yet another episode. But can you imagine that she used their producers is one of her ploys to get a, someone in the car to take them home to kill them. Well, that's but, why, that's why, that's why the, I mean, there's so much pre-planning on this. Yeah. She knew what she was doing. It's not like, it's, it's not like she was having a mental breakdown and just started whacking people off. That's terrible to say. I didn't mean it that point. I didn't mean to that term. I was thinking like more mafia whacking people, killing people. Let me see not whacking people off, killing people off. You know what I mean? And well, she was fired from two other insurance companies for forging signatures. Wonderful person. So for all I know, that could be part of the mystery in Florida. She may have forged someone's signature that she killed to get more mo- to get money there. We've, we've got interviews with people. We've got some rumors. I can't talk about them right, right now. But I would not surprise me at all if there isn't someone else out there that we haven't found yet. There probably is, you know, she's so far. I mean, I mean, and once they start doing that, and I know a lot of the attitude is once I kill somebody, they're, they're going to, the, the, they're going to put me away from the max anyway. I might as well just keep going, you know, cause it's not going to matter one or five people. Yeah. So she's probably got a trail of people uh, in a lot of places that she's done this to and pull this kind of stuff. Well, they, the one thing that was chilling was that, you know, when they interviewed her friends from high school and everything else, uh, they said she changed when she came back from Florida, that suddenly she was reclusive. She didn't try to rekindle her friendships. They said something was different. So I do believe something probably did happen out there. Probably. Um, Marisa says the woman is just evil. No kidding. I'm sorry. What did you say? Uh, Marisa in the chat room says the woman is just evil. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, No kidding. Yeah, Russ called her evil incarnate. So I'm so glad you you came on with this. This is this is insane. I'm still trying to wrap my head around it. Well, when um, Keith Morrison, who's my favorite Dateline guy, uh, was interviewing Tim Lomar, the prosecuting attorney for Louis Gumpenberger, 
uh, Tim Lomar said that the the plot she had with Louis Gumpenberger with the knife and the note and the hundred dollar bills. He goes, this was something a middle schooler would have come up with. Yeah. And Keith Morrison grins. He goes, she's not going to like that you said that. And Tim goes, nope, she probably won't. <laughs> he said because she thought she was smarter than everybody. Wow. Just but wh- anyway, your listeners can also go listen to Dateline's podcast, The Thing About Pam. Okay. It's fascinating. It's that's it's what we've been going over here. And um, they are, like I said, one of the producers for the miniseries coming out. And it is called The Thing About Pam. Okay, we'll do that. Definitely. Now, we're going to get you back on again because you are a fascinating person to have on. You know, the oh, stuff you write, that. you know, uh, I know you have that book out about the, the, the ghost of Versailles. So that would be interesting to talk about. So I want to get your okay. book back on again. And then when you make the follow-up book to this thing, I definitely want to get you back on again. This is crazy. Oh, thank you. I, I appreciate that, Charlotte. I enjoy this a lot. What I appreciate about these radio shows is you guys are so smart. I mean, you're articulate. You've done your background work. I learn a lot from you in these shows. Except I couldn't say and, Zelda uh, earlier, but that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> you guys work hard. And I'm always appreciative that you share your forum. And, and you're a joy to talk to. And I, I hope your contact gets better. I, can't I do, even too. Imagine that. Oh, yeah. I mean, well, last night, yeah, I, I was having trouble seeing with it last night. I couldn't figure out why. And then today, I made a, I, I made a supply run. You know, because we're still... I'm still in COVID mode because I, I have heart issues and stuff. So I, I don't go out like I should. <laughs> and uh, so I, I made a supply run to Walmart today. And, and wow, all of a sudden it started hurting. as It was moving around. And then all of a sudden it hit, it hit a spot where it was just like, oh, my God, there's a rip in it. You know, so I have to... Yeah. I have to order some, but it's all good. Well, your ghost tours sound fun. Let me know how that goes. Yeah, we're going to be doing that. I'm going to repeat that at the end of the show, too, that we're going to start doing that again. It's pretty fun because, we'll, you know, we'll go in to, a, like, a hotel a, a, a hotel that's been investigated before, you know, that, that everyone in the world knows it's haunted. Cool. And and so we'll take guests with us, and, and they get to actually use the equipment, you know, that we use. And the psych- and each, each group will have a psychic with them. And they get to go through and do EVP sessions at the whole ball game. And then that night after the investigation, we'll go over the EVPs and then we'll we'll sit down the next morning or you know the following weekend and we'll talk about it all. That's wonderful. Actually, I'm finally doing a book in California. My friend Erica Mailman and I are co-authoring a book on the Winchester Mystery House. Nice. Nice. Um, but have me back sometime. We'll talk about Limp Mansion in St. Louis. That's oh yeah, I know the legend over there. Met. That is awesome. Let's do that. That would be okay. really fun. Okay, I want to well, say you take care. You and too. Thank you so much for having me. Um, no, anytime, anytime to have you back is great. You've done thank some really you, good shows. Good. You know, it's just this is your this is for your second or third show with us. Well, yeah, the thing with this, this the one, one? That makes me nervous when I is because there's three different murders there's all these dates to remember and so I'm always relieved when I'm finished going yeah I didn't forget anything <laughs> I hear you I understand completely I understand thank you so much you have a good evening and I'll be in touch right. to get you booked again because yeah absolutely we're going to have you back on yeah let me know what you think of the miniseries I will do that I'm, I'm looking all forward right. to watching it okay thank you so much Rebecca you bet take care you too bye Wow, I have no words, and I've always got words for stuff, and I have absolutely 
no words for what went down on the show night. You know, I like I said, I had to get up a couple of times. You know, while the little book thing was up, I had to get up a couple of times to see what the dog was doing. I also have cats, and she and she used to like to chase barn cats. So I have cats in cat enclosures in my house. So I was just waiting for a meow, and I had to go running out there. You know, she hasn't done anything with them yet. So she's doing really, she, she's, she's really good. It was nice of the lady to drop her, you know, to, to bring her up here from Bakersfield to drop her off for me because I, you know, I couldn't get up to Bakersfield and, and it was a nice little gift and, you know, she's a beautiful little dog, but uh, yeah. And then when I got back in, I sit down and she, and right when I sit down, it was always, she, the lady was doing this and doing that. And doing that. Wow. I just have no words. Anyway, tomorrow night, we're still on the same subject. Steve Ugani is going to be with us. And he's the gentleman that wrote the book on who killed Princess Diana, who killed Elvis. Tomorrow, it's going to be who killed FDR. So he is going to be on with us. That's going to be a, that's going to be a, a two and a half. That's going to be a, yeah, like a, almost, it's usually a two hour show with him. So just an FYI to pack your food up and stuff for that. But he's going to be on with us tomorrow night. So we're going to talk about who killed FDR. And again, I'm just going to get the ghost tour things going. And that'll be up on the on our meetup site, and that'll also be up on Facebook. It'll also be up on the website. I'll get I'll get to that tonight, you know, later on on the website, so I can do an update to set that. Excuse me. But uh, if you like this, you know, it, if you like the show, share it with five people. If you hated the show, share it with five people. And again, I apologize for whatever was going on with the mics. I don't know what that was. It seemed to clear up when. We went directly out on phone, so it might have been from her end because obviously you can hear mine. It's not doing that on my end. So at least we got that taken care of. I hate when that kind of thing happens because it takes away from the show. But, you know, that's what we are. We're, we have to deal with the technical gods here. Okay? Again, if you like the show, share it with five people. If you hated the show, share it with five of your enemies. And again, if, if you're watching this from YouTube, look down at the bottom right-hand corner. You'll see the little ghost there with the magnifying glass. And the Sherlock Holmes hat, that's our mascot. And press on that, and that'll make you a subscriber. If you have trouble finding us on YouTube, because all you have to do is Google in California Haunts on YouTube, and it should pop up. But if you have trouble finding us on YouTube, then you can go to CaliforniaHauntsRadio.com and click on the video that's on the front page, and that'll take you to the YouTube page. We have over 190 videos over there for you to watch. Also, if you prefer... And you don't want to watch video, and you want you just want to hear my lovely voice and the and the voice of whoever I have on with me. You could check our RSS feeds, RSS.com California Haunts. We're there. Or Apple. We're on Apple Music. We're also on um, TuneIn Radio, iHeart, just about every major uh, podcast network. So you could check our shows you know, out there. In fact, what's neat about that is if you get on uh, like the Apple Network, you will find two California Haunts radio listings. One's from when we were on Blog Talk Radio, and then the other one is from this from this era. So you could check those out as well. Anyway, I want to thank you guys to, for coming. Uh, again, I'm going to remind you that ticker at the bottom of the page, uh, at the bottom, is because we are a nonprofit organization, and I am the bank for the nonprofit organization. So that means our internet and lighting and all everything the mic the computer it all comes out of my pocket so if you could help me out a little bit because this is all this is all i do right now you know again i'm i'm coveted <laughs> and so I, I this this is it this is it for me 
So if you could help me pay some of the bills, I, you know, I'd, I'd appreciate it, honest, honestly. Um, so that would be at paypal.me at California Haunts. Or if you're uncomfortable with PayPal, we are at Venmo. So, so go to Venmo and type in California Haunts. You can donate from there. Now, before I close the show up, I'm going to show you her contact information. I'm going to read it out loud for the, for the podcast folks and uh, where you can get her book. Okay, and don't forget, in March, to look for that uh, documentary. Because I think it's going to be something. Man, th- this story this story was a hub dinner. So let me let me get this going here. I'm going to lean forward. Whoa, okay. So here we go. Let's hope I hit the right button. There we go. Website, RebeccaPittmanBooks.com. R-E-B-C-C-A. RebeccaFPittmanBooks.com. And, of course, the book. Which is available at dun, 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 Amazon.com. And you'll find all her other books because she, like I said, she's got a lot of books that she's written. So you'll find all her other books over there as well. Anyway, I want to thank you guys for coming tonight. I appreciate it. I appreciate each and every one of you. And uh, I hope this. Uh, I hope you all join us tomorrow for Who Killed FDR, as I think that's going to be a, a, a wild night as well. You know, to find out about who killed FDR. Anyway, thank you very much. I will see you tomorrow. Bye bye. <laughs>